Please stand with me and take out your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be Acts 15, verses 22 through 41. Acts 15, beginning in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also, with many others also the word of the Lord. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along with, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to, their, to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed to the brethren, to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Sicilia and strengthening the churches. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's prepare to hear from the word of God today. Let's go before him in prayer once again. Father God, this is a very significant event in redemptive history about gospel free grace, the glories of the good news, nothing to be added to the finished work of Christ. Help us to see here that truth through the lives of these early saints and let us learn the importance of unity within the body. A people reconciled to you are to be reconciled to one another. Thank you for the honesty of Scripture. We're blessed. Enable me to communicate your truth this morning, I ask, for Christ's sake, by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Debates and disputes. 
amid falsehood and failure. Debate over soul-damning doctrine and a dispute over disappointment. That's what we have before us this morning. Now, I said last time that Acts 15 is a treasured portion of Scripture for those who, who realize the need to contend for the faith. All true believers will contend for the faith. When a situation within the confessing church necessitates examination and deliberation. This provides vital lessons in how the church is to conduct herself in matters of theological debate. When the gospel's on the line, when truth is being opposed, threatened by opposing forces, God's people must stand. When there is a theological argument that arises from the platform of heresy, we must stand. We must consider how do we resolve the issue. Well, we don't passively ignore it nor do we bow to it, ever. Some Christians are, you know, peace at all cost kinds of Christians. They say nothing. If that's you, you need to say something when the time comes. Conflict avoiders at all cost. On the other hand, There's others who delight in conflict. They don't know what to do unless there's conflict. They always have something to say. They need to learn to be quiet because they typically argue over minuscule things. But when it comes to essential Christian doctrine, when the gospel is threatened, you must stand on the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God, the Bible. That's one thing we see in Acts 15 that is critical. There's no debate about that with regard to standing on the truth. And we will see the further results of that essential doctrinal issue that we looked into last week that led to a very crucial debate in the early church. Luke, our author, concludes in this section Another debate. Okay, that was the first debate. We'll look more into that. And then there's a second debate recorded here. It is a personal, mission-focused, preference-oriented dispute that affects a key partnership in the kingdom of God. A key partnership who separate from one another. Paul and Barnabas enter into a hot debate between themselves And Luke, the inspired author, does not gloss over it. You know, it's expected that we might have disputes with unbelievers. And then there are separations relationally 
You know, things go south. Yet nothing is more heart-wrenching this side of eternity when two brothers or sisters or a brother and a sister in Christ separate. Here, we have two strong, mature Christians who are willing to lay down their lives for the gospel. They already have their first missionary journey, willing to lay down their lives who had been through so much together. Paul and Barnabas, establishing churches, setting up leadership, setting up and establishing elders and deacons in these churches, moving on, who the Holy Spirit set apart for this work that I, God says, have set them and called them to do, chapter 13. Set out by the Holy Spirit, called by God to be together and to stay together. And we see this conflict, this separation. And let me assure you of this, beloved. This passage is not an excuse for conflict. Well, we're just sinners. These things are going to happen. You know, so be it. We move on. No, this is simply a reminder that it does happen. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <sighs> okay, so last time we looked at the very serious matter uh, that the early church faced. They entered into debate um, there was a, a pressure group that arrived. They came from Jerusalem and they entered into the city of Antioch, the church of Antioch, referred to as Judaizers, and they arrived claiming authorization, by the way, claiming authorization by the apostles, insisting that without circumcision, without the law of Moses, there was no salvation for these Gentiles. You see, that's Jesus plus something. That's another gospel. And anyone who preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. Repent or be accursed. As though the Mosaic law somehow supplements the free grace gospel of Jesus Christ. Any works added to the free grace gospel of Jesus Christ, my friends, is soul-damning legalism. Soul-damning Legalism. Legalism at the most corrupt level when it's another gospel. It's corruption that attempts to delete the doctrine of justification by faith. The doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, the article upon which the church stands or falls, said Martin Luther at the Great Reformation. Now, we spent time last week making a distinction between soul-damning legalism and soul-damaging legalisms that some believers unwisely adopt legalisms and the soul-damning legalism that says it's Jesus, it's faith and trust in him plus this stuff. The gospel declares that true believers are united, rooted, joined together, grounded in gospel grace, and we are to major on the main things. Amen? The problem in the church from the first century until this day is that many people major in the minors. Legalisms. That's an irritating problem. Always has been. Christians major in the minors. This issue is no minor matter. This is a gospel issue. So in response, having gone to God's word, the elders 
the apostles together gave thoughtful argumentation at this council. They went into Jerusalem. They spoke about how God has cleansed the Gentiles' hearts, verse 8, by faith. It is only by faith that a sinner can be cleansed through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that is what ultimately makes anybody clean before Christ. His work attributed to sinners that we embrace by faith, not circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. He cleanses the heart. Jew and Gentile alike, it's the same for every human being to this day. Faith and trust in Christ alone. Justification by faith in Christ alone. Covered by the blood of Christ alone. Purified, cleansed, made right, declared righteous before the living God through faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the church is still immune to the temptation to elevate custom to the level of law. You know, A.W. Pink once said, and I quote, the more true spirituality declines, the more an elaborate ritual comes to the forefront. Word. In verses 15 to 17, we looked at these last week, James, this is the half-brother of Jesus, provides scriptural reasons in defense of Peter's argument who declared, look, the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles as he did upon us back at Pentecost. I saw the miracles. I was there. Cornelius and his household. This occurrence, this miraculous occurrence. I was there 10 years before. James goes on and he appeals to the prophets. He goes to the word of God. He appeals to the prophets that speak about Gentile inclusion, which has been God's plan from the beginning. And he follows up with some pastoral counsel given to Gentiles that are included, that are enfolded into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is gospel grace is not license for immorality. Verse 20. So picking up in verse 22, after all this, a decision has been made. Paul and Barnabas, along with Judas and Silas, would go back to Antioch, the base for Gentile missions. They'll travel back and they will report with letter in hand, great findings of the Jerusalem council that salvation is indeed by grace alone. Amen? And we all jump up. I know you're just jumping up and down in your chairs. You want to get up. You want to do a victory lap. <laughs> Gospel grace. Now, verses 23 to 28 include the letter that they have in hand. The apostles... And the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved brother Barnabas and Paul, 
men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by the word of mouth. Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Verse 29. That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things, from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So, these newly converted Gentiles here in Antioch, saved by the free grace of the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ alone, must abstain from any involvement, even by association, with idolatry. This was their background. Now, the, the practices listed here have a very particular context, so I'm going to go over them again, as I did last Lord's Day. And this has to do with things that took place in pagan temple worship. False worship of false gods, idolatry. There would be a sacrifice of an, of an animal in their pagan temple. The priest would strangle it. He would choke out its life and sometimes symbolically transfer the last breath of the sacrifice into their idol. Also, sometimes the, the temple priest would taste its blood, drink its blood, symbolizing transfer of life powers from the sacrifice to the priest. And associated with these practices within these temples was the involvement of temple prostitution, both, both hetero and homosexual prostitution within these worship, quote-unquote, services. Very evil practice. So in other words, he says, do not get involved anymore as believers set free by the gospel with these pagan practices because free gospel grace is not licensed for immorality. Amen? It's very clear. They understand this. Now, in addition to that, in addition to the obvious iniquity, they are never, we're never to compromise the gospel but there may be other matters in which we must be sensitive in order to have a better witness before other brothers and sisters. So there's two things at hand here. And in, 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 in this case, notice, abstain from things sacrificed to idols. That is, for the sake of Jewish converts, for the sake of your brothers and sisters who are Jewish, who still regard certain food laws or certain food as, as abominable, especially if it was offered up to a false god, this would be a courtesy, a courteous and temporary restraint. That is, eating meat sacrificed to idols. Paul had to deal with this in the church of Corinth. He'd have to deal with it in the church of Rome, where people had come to believe that eating meat offered to idols in the morning and then sold at the marketplace in the evening for you to eat that would be sin. Paul made clear that's not sin, but if your conscience is bound to not partaking of meat offered to an idol in the morning, later sold in the marketplace, then don't partake. And if you have freedom, 
to partake because it's not sin. And there's someone who's greatly offended by that for the sake of your brother. Don't partake in front of him. That's the principle. Amen? So those two things are at play here. For those who had liberty to partake, the instruction is that we should most certainly be sensitive to the weaker brother. That is, for the sake of their weaker conscience, don't rub it in their face because you have freedom and they don't. And we need to apply that. Well, we don't have meat issues today, but there are other things. I don't need to list them all, but there are other things that God does not forbid that Christians can participate in, but others might be consciously bound from not doing those things, so therefore, don't rub it in their face if you're around them. Just abstain when you're around them for the sake of your brother. That's the principle. Are you with me? Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. It's not circumcision. It's faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So we, we, we give you two, just, just two matters of instruction here that you need to carry out. And it was in our meeting and the conclusion was by way of the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, um, his word and our agreement together corporately is a plurality of leaders. So the Holy Spirit leads, you see, and speaks to us in this way. When church leadership gathers together, when the church gathers together and they come to a unified position on a manner by way of prayer, scripture, and the Holy Spirit, and in this case, debate, we can say that the Holy Spirit led us in this way. We don't want to say that, you know, that the Holy Spirit, his leading means he, he whispers secrets in my ear. And I've heard men say, or women, you know, the Spirit is leading me. I know it's the Spirit to leave my spouse. Oh, really? Yeah, the Spirit's leading me because I just feel it in my soul. He doesn't want me to be unhappy. I feel the Lord is calling me to lead my wife. Are you out of your mind? What, is there adultery? Unrepentant adultery? Because even if there's adultery, God can work through it. No, I just feel it. He wants me to be happy. The scripture says, Psalm 94, and let me say this, kids, the scripture says don't be stupid. That's a biblical word there. Don't be. The spirit doesn't speak in your ear things contrary to his word. So when we bring his word, if there is a debate, we bring the word, we, we pray about it according to the word, the spirit leads, leads us in light of his word, not away from it. That's what they mean. That's what they did. So be careful if you think the spirit just whispers secrets into your ear and it's contrary to scripture. Friends, this was a very critical time in the early church. The Gentiles were being folded into the body by faith, according to God's grace, bringing them out of pagan practices. And that's why they have the instruction here. So, in other words, doctrine leads to duty, doesn't it? 
Doctrine leads to duty. He says, write to these churches. Two concessions. Number one, abstain from sexual immorality and the idolatry associated with it. There's no debate about it. Stop it. Come out. You've been set free. Two, in order to maintain unity, ask these Gentiles to forego how they eat in certain company for the sake of their brother. That's love on display. So while they're not to be bound, the Gentiles are not to be bound by repealed Jewish ceremonial laws fulfilled in Christ. They're not to be bound, but some immature Jews, converted Jews, they don't yet realize they're no longer bound either. They just haven't matured yet in understanding gospel freedom. So for their sake, be courteous. And then in verses 30 to 35, we see the results of the council. Verse 30, having gathered the congregation together, there's the instruction of the letter, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Notice, there are things that they are to abstain from in the letter. They're called not to do certain things, and they do not see that as some treacherous burden. They rejoice. Verse 32, Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Praise God for lengthy messages. Amen? Amen. Amen. What's this in and out in 15 minute business? No. Verse 35, Paul and Barnabas continued in Antioch teaching and preaching. That's evangelism and edification. So in verse 36, the Jerusalem council is over. The results have been announced to the people in Antioch. The conclusion, victory. Victory of truth in confirming the gospel of grace. Christ plus nothing. There was also a victory of love. We have a victory of truth, victory of love, in preserving fellowship of believers. That is between, in this context, Gentile and Jews. So you have truth and love. Truth, the gospel must be defended at all points. A hill you must be willing to die on. And in here, love, I will not, I will not allow my freedom to become licensed for sin. And secondly, I will, if I need to, forego certain freedoms so as not to offend my brother. Truth, love. So this early war... This doctrinal war where the gospel is at stake, this is essential matter, that war has been won. But the battles will continue for Paul because sadly these Judaizers, they did not repent. They did not submit to apostolic authority. They did not, did not submit to the Jerusalem council and they would go on. They became a little sect that would bother the church everywhere and they would dog the, the steps of Paul basically the rest of his life. Just dogging his steps. Trying to impose their Jewish legalism on the churches to which Paul ministered. But nevertheless, notice, there's great rejoicing. Do you see this? Look at this. There's rejoicing. There's, there's celebration in, in the validation of salvation by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Truth, 
and love. So here now, at this point in Acts 15, we've got or the church, the early church, they have their theology, their directions, and their unity in Christ. Everything's squared away, right? Everything's good. They're readied once again to finish the course given to them by way of Christ in the Great Commission, and that is to go preach Christ to the known world. Barnabas and Saul, they're ready to go. This was opposition. They faced it. There's victory. They give encouragement to the church. And here then, everything appears to be wonderful. Everything's good, sound, peaceful. The church at Antioch can rest now. A rupture develops. An altercation centered around John Mark, who was their helper, the helper of Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul, on the first missionary expedition. So we move, brothers and sisters, from debate over falsehood to a dispute over personal failure. Verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. John, Mark. John and Mark are his Hebrew um, and Greek names, respectively, who didn't finish the race. He did not finish the first journey. So having left the first journey, here at the forefront of the second, he wants to redeem himself. He wants to prove himself faithful. Now, we're not told why he left. Maybe it was emotional. Could have been a physical problem. Something at home. He could have been afraid of everything they experienced in the journey. I mean, remember, we just read they, rest, they risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. Could have been fear. We're not told. But Barnabas here was eager to reinstate John Mark into this, the second missionary journey, Paul was adamantly opposed to it. Hmm. Verse 38, Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them. That, that's loaded language to say the least. Desertion? John Mark is a deserter. That's the language of abandonment. Jumping ship, fleeing the scene, bolting a dark alley when you're in trouble and you leave your friend there. You ever been left like that, brothers? You're in a dark alley, it's you and two of your boys and there's five on the other side and one of them bails on you? It's happened. It happened to me. So, he left him in the lurch. He's a quitter. A cowardly soldier who went AWOL, absent without leave. To Paul, this guy's a liability. 
Paul looks at John Mark and he sees um, a, a level of culpability, character weakness. I can't trust this guy, Barnabas. This guy deserted us. This is God's business. Barnabas sees things differently. The encourager. Remember, Barnabas wasn't his name. That was his nickname. Son of encouragement. We all need Barnabases. You don't want a bunch of me's around. Can I get a witness, my brother? Good encourager we have. This is a guy who could bring competing sides together. He was a peacemaker, Barnabas, encourager. And we don't want to miss this. Colossians 4 does tell us that Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. I don't think that's the, the, the primary cause for him, him going to battle on behalf of John Mark, but we, we don't want to miss it. We can't ignore it. Blood is thick. So he probably said, Paul, let's give him another shot. He failed us the first time. He won't fail us this time. He won't do it again, Paul. I assure you. I'm here to encourage. I'm here to encourage the situation. In verse 39, we read that there was a sharp disagreement that conveys the idea of provoking to anger. It's the idea of a sickle, of, of, a, of a knife, something sharp, something painful. Passions are aroused. Friends, this is a heated exchange. Hot. It's not a tender debate. Sharp disagreement. A violent explosion. Emotions get heated. Paul stood his ground. Notice he kept insisting. He kept on insisting on his point regarding young John Mark. Friends, is this not yet another account of how brutally honest scripture is? Luke, our author, does not hide the humanity of these two apostles any more than the Old Testament tries to hide the egregious human failings of King David who committed adultery and murder of Uriah. A man after God's own heart. Why is he a man after God's own heart? Not because he murdered and committed adultery for sure, but because he was such a repentant, true man of God who grieved and who did bear the consequences of God's hand of chastening. Nothing hidden here. I mean, the, the, the situation here is so tense that, that lovable, even-tempered Barnabas uses angry words. And Paul had a long way to go before he could write, love is patient, love is kind, love does not insist on its own ways. Room for growth, amen? Amen. How about you? So, the, the lives and the, and the actions of early saints or saints throughout redemptive history, their portraits are painted for us warts and all. 
Scripture is brutally honest. You know, and then, and then men try to say that the Bible was written by men. That they derived all this. Well, then records like this make no sense. Because our desire and our flesh is to always make man look good. Or take, for instance, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If, if the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ were invented by men, okay, when they gathered together to consider the account, yeah, let's, let's say he was raised from the dead. Who, who do we want to be first at the tomb? Oh, I've got it. Three women. How about that? When a women's testimony in the first century was not allowed in court. Three women. Oh, and while we're at it, let's name them. Um... A Mary, Mary, and Mary. Oh, that's brilliant. Wouldn't happen. That would never happen. In other words, the Bible proves itself over and over again simply by the fact you can't make this up. <laughs> A dispute. You're going to add this, you're, you, you don't want to gloss over dispute between Barnabas and Saul, the Apostle Paul. Could have, could have left it out. Not by divine inspiration, though. So who was right? Paul or Barnabas? You can debate about that. Because we're not told. You know, I, I know for me, personally, it's incredibly challenging, very taxing to serve with guys who are constantly vacillating back and forth, spiritually, doctrinally, and emotionally. Those are the guys I picture who would leave you in a dark alley. And there's just no time for it. And then you have men who love doctrine. They love to talk about it, they rejoice in it, but they don't apply it. They're not at home what they appear to be here. That's a taxing problem. Doctrine for them rarely leads to duty. On the other hand, a person can mean well, engage, fail miserably, and get fired. John Mark was fired. Cut loose. I read a commentary this week. Talked about losing employment. It says the primary reason that people lose their jobs or dwindle out of ministry is that the tasks they're assigned to do don't match their gifts. And the generic term for this is incompetency. However, that term can be incorrectly applied, writes R.C. Sproul, who goes on to say, and I quote, every person in the Christian community has a gift and is therefore competent. There are lots of things I cannot do, says Sproul, and if I were placed in a job that necessitates one or more of the things I cannot do, I would be deemed incompetent. That would not mean that I'm totally incompetent, but simply that I had not yet found a job in which my responsibilities meet my areas of ability. If we lose our job, it may very well be that the providence of God is indicating that we are in the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong reason. 
Z. End of quote. Now, that being said, there are those who are fired for stealing from the company. There are those fired who, who constantly whine and complain and gossip and backstab their coworkers. Nevertheless, if you have, quoting Sproul again, lost your job, see it as a providence of God. I know losing a job can be devastating. Perhaps the job was a bad fit for you and for your particular gifts. If so, that certainly does not mean that God does not have something extremely important and significant for you to do. End of quote. Amen? So here, greater than the dispute, who was right, who was wrong, don't know. We all have our personal opinions. So here, greater than the dispute, the Holy Spirit brilliantly works this out. So despite Paul and Barnabas and this heated disagreement, God was working and moving through it, wasn't he? In spite of them, in spite of their argument. And Barnabas, who, who saw John Mark, is the making of an evangelist, if properly encouraged, Paul declined the risk. God moves on with two missionary teams who go out now. Amen? Barnabas took Mark, verse 39, with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord and was traveling through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So one missionary team has become two. Silas, who I'd like to spend some time on next Lord's Day, perhaps we'll do that, um, was brought into the ministry uh, by Paul. And, and he provides gifts, and there are benefits that Barnabas didn't have. Or exercise. He couldn't exercise them because he didn't have them particular gifts, particular privileges. Silas, like Paul, was a Roman citizen, for instance, and that benefits them greatly later on in the missionary journey. Do you remember when Paul was beaten? And what was the law of Rome? No Roman citizen was to be beaten. Paul's beaten, thrown in prison, and they're about to uh, carry out some, some more pretty intense persecution and he says, hey, hold the phone a minute, fellas. Does not the law say you're not to beat a Roman citizen? Right? And they start scrambling, nervous. So Paul used that to his advantage. So Silas, also a Roman citizen, well, they'll be able to use that to their advantage in furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. So although Barnabas was indeed a great loss to the ministerial efforts of Paul, Silas was a great gain. So here we see the providence of God being carried out. Nevertheless, they limped away from one another. They limped away. One commentator has rightly said that every Christian walks with a limp. That, of course, is a reference to Jacob wrestling with God all night. He puts his joint out of hip, or his hip out of joint. Sorry. Sorry about that. I'm surprised you don't laugh at me more <laughs> than you do. 
but we all have some kind of limp, amen? And it reminds us, friends, of the grace of God in our lives, and it also reminds us of this, and may we never forget it. God is pleased when his people work together amidst differences. Amidst differences. Because they, we, must work together. It's always been that way. At the time of prayer, I gave the example of King David, mighty king. He didn't go, he didn't go at it himself. He had mighty men. Those ambidextrous men who could sling a stone with the left hand and the right hand and arrows with left and right hands. Mighty men, mighty men of valor, men who could run, men who were gifted differently. Very important. Jesus, he gathered 12 disciples. And mind you, they were not the easiest to get along with. They couldn't even get along with one another. Or even with Jesus, Consider the gospel accounts. Just go read it. It's there. And when we get to the early church, the ministry mirrors what he did. He sent them out together. So you must remain together. This is not an excuse for separation. It's just an example that it happens. Why is it not an excuse? Because we've been reconciled to God. Undeserving, undeserving people we are. And if we've been reconciled to God, he says be reconciled to one another. And if you have a dispute with someone today, whether it's your marriage, someone on the other side of this congregation, you need to get it right. Well, I'm holding out. What, because of your pride? Repent. Be reconciled to your brother. Be reconciled to your sister today. That's the authoritative command of Scripture. Now I'm waiting for my pride to go away. It won't go away on its own. So you can sit with your arms crossed all day. That's the account. There's a happy ending. John Mark was able to prove himself faithful. Amen? John Mark was able to prove himself faithful after this seemingly cowardly desertion. Towards the end of his life, that is, of the Apostle Paul, we hear about John Mark. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul asks that Timothy bring with him, notice, he says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Ah, reconciliation. Restoration. I have no doubt Paul and Barnabas reconciled. There's no doubt in my mind. Here's an example of it. Colossians 4.10, written by Paul. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions, and if he comes to you, welcome the man. He's my boy. 
faithful. Philemon 23, we see him listed. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow what? My fellow workers. Reconciliation, restoration. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter refers to John Mark as my son. He is my son in the faith, and that's a little hint, because what was John Mark's greatest accomplishment, beloved? The gospel of Mark. He penned the gospel of Mark. John Mark provides one of the greatest contributions to the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Mark that we just finished up just a few months ago. Reconciliation. Restoration. A guy who had been fired, viewed as being incompetent in the role of missionary, is restored to the ministry. So it is this man, this failure, this deserter, this quitter, the one who deserted us in our time of need, said Paul, is the man God chose to write the gospel of Mark. Isn't it beautiful? And tradition tells us that it is Peter who gave Mark the information he would need to pen that gospel, having not been there, as was Peter. Amen? Providence of God. Maybe you feel like a John Mark this morning. Maybe you have failed. Maybe you have failed miserably. Perhaps you have failed miserably in public. And you may be asking, can God use me, a failure? And his answer is, of course, what? Absolutely. That's the depth of his love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. Because there's forgiveness with God. We'll close with what we opened with. Psalm 130. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be revered. That we might stand in awe of your kindness, mercy, love, and grace. Forgiveness as far as the east is from the west. Have you been forgiven of all your sins, past, present, future? Do you stand in confident trust today? That if you died this afternoon, you would immediately be ushered into the throne room of heaven? It's only by way of faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. If you're not in that place today, repent of your unbelief. Repent of your sin. Come to Christ by faith. Receive him as who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. And you'll come to realize that he paid your debt on Calvary's cross, and in return, you get all of his righteousness placed upon your account, so that if you do die this afternoon, with 100% certainty, you can know you will be ushered into the presence of God, not by one thing you have done or haven't done, but by everything that's been accomplished in Jesus Christ alone. You shall be saved. Because there's forgiveness with God. That's what the table represents, for which we're about to partake. If you're not a believer, I pray and I hope God's at work in your life to bring you to a place of true repentance.
But if you don't believe the gospel, don't partake. Let it pass. And all God's people, regardless of how much of a failure you may feel you are, you come to the table. You come to the table and receive. Amen? The broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this account. Doctrinal stability. We see a fight for doctrinal truth and clarity. That free, the free grace gospel is by way of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. By faith and trust in him alone. Because we're forgiven, cleansed, purified, may we come to, to celebrate, to, to participate, and to commemorate, and to anticipate your return as we partake together as one body in Christ, the head of the church. And for this dispute, Lord, we thank you that we see such a wonderful ending in the restoration of a young man, John Mark, who wrote your gospel, bearing his name, and um, how much of an asset he, he later came to be in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Um, help us to, to remember um, that you have not ceased to restore something that's been lost. Help us to endure till the end by faith, not in our own strength, but by the power of your Spirit. Prepare us as we prepare to take the table in Jesus' name. Amen.